My husband and I, in March of 99, had a full-term uh, stillbirth, um, our son, Coda, and it was a surprise. It was not, there was nothing, supposedly nothing wrong with the pregnancy, supposedly healthy. You know, we should have heard, it's a boy. And, you know, it turned out to be a situation where we heard this baby is dead. Uh, um, the, the things that cascaded in our experience with his birth death and our own grief experiences and the grief experiences of our older children. Um, you know, I was a writer and I was an artist before, uh, in crafting before his birth death, but <sighs> something solidified after that, that really made creativity and grief um, connect for me. That was Kara Jones, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 168. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I don't have any magic answers. I can't give you a miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything, really. But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm so over that quick fix approach, honestly. And my guess is maybe you are too. Perhaps that's why you're here. So we'll be diving into today's episode in a few minutes. But before that, I have two quick things that I want to share with you. The first is a reminder that this is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, where we talk about things like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health. We talk about grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. My hope is that these conversations will make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. That's really important. And then the other thing that I want to tell you is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this podcast because these conversations, they're 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations do indeed make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. This tangible financial support, that's what allows me to keep making new episodes and it pays everyone involved in making Real Talk Radio. That includes me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all my guests, and our community recently met the funding goal that makes that possible now. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time with us, and higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show, but I fully believe that where we spend our money, it's a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. So that's what your financial support contributes to. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series called Notes of Grit and Grace. That's where I share my real life in real time. 
Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization. With past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution as well. Over on our Patreon page, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together after the release of each new season, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to support the show. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Kara Jones. Kara is the creative grief educator and hardest behind griefandcreativity.com. She co-founded both the Creative Grief Studio and Coda Press, and she's a Carnegie Mellon graduate who interned for three years at Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood back in the day. For the past couple of decades, Kara has been exploring creative approaches to grief experiences. In this episode, Kara shares the deeply personal story of how she began working in the grief field after the death of her son. She talks about why we need to give ourselves space and permission, how to be there for someone who's grieving, how creativity can help us move through our grief, and so much more. Kara gave me a lot to think about in the time that we spent together, and this is one of those conversations that gets better and better the longer it goes. I hope you enjoy listening. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are good to go. Kara, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. <laughs> Drop me into your real life. Tell me how you spent the first couple hours of your day today. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah. So I actually leaned on community this morning, like about an hour ago, <laughs> because the early part of my morning, my husband and I actually had some time this morning. I made coffee and I started, um, looking through things and I was so discouraged by some of the things I was seeing, you know, in the political scene and on the cultural level and, and it was so discouraging. And so I sort of put a post out to, um, on one of my feeds and said, can anyone share like silly memes or something inspiring? (laughs) Like I got to get out of this mindset of like a burning fire dumpster (laughs) I'm going to sit and talk with Nicole for two hours. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and I love it, you know, people jumped in right away. And so even though it's always like really just me inside my little four walls in my studio, putting all these things out into the ether, um, I just love that people respond and are out there. And so that was kind of my morning was like this fluctuation from like, oh, burning dumpster fire to like, oh, people responded. (laughs) And and now we're here. Which yeah, I, love. I I love that. I love the sort of lesson that that underscores that actually it's cool to ask for what you need, and then surprise, surprise, people are more likely to give it to you. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I think that's such an interesting thing in terms of self care in our culture. You know, there's a, I mean, and it, and it relates to grief that everything's so presented as this individual thing, and you know, self care you do it yourself, and um. Uh, the things that are implied in it. And yet really self-care is community care. 
you know, and community care, self-care. And there's been a lot of writing about that in terms of uh, disability justice uh, writing, activist writing, that, you know, we need people. <laughs> like our self-care is about community and it has to be. So, yeah, I, I love that piece that comes out in grief stuff, too. Grief is also often presented as individual and it's an emotion thing we go through. And yet it's relational. It's so shaped by everything around us. Um, and and I keep trying to put that uh, foremost in my mind. You know what I mean? And, and, and how I practice in my life as well as my professional practice. It's never going to be me with the bootstraps, that weird self-myth stuff in America that we have. Um, keep practicing, you know, uh, how I extend into community and how community extends into my life and my grief experience and my self-care. Yeah, that's interesting, this idea of expanding the definition of self-care and, and looking mm -hmm. at community care. More specifically, can you talk, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, um, you know... I think there's so much, I mean, I think we see it in every sort of aspect of our lives and our sort of modern Western capitalist <laughs> ways of being. There's so much cookie cutter, uh, uh, here's a here's a quick, you know, logo line to get to the heart of something. And, and so I think there's so much about self-care that's just individualistic. You know, it's, it's a bubble bath. It's, uh, it's having access to something or buying something or, and it just doesn't play out in people's real lives that way. It doesn't. And I see it over and over again in my own grief experience, but then in doing, you know, a couple of decades now of holding space for other people who are grieving. Um, there just is no self-made pull up by your bootstrap space. There, there, there isn't. Um, and, you know, so often people, when I start to interact with them about their grief experiences and we're talking about creativity, we're not only expanding the definition of self-care, we're expanding the definition of grief, we're expanding the definition of creativity. And I think it's because the key sort of, the key thing to holding that kind of space with people is people reach out to me or to other practitioners or to support groups or to art classes or whatever ways they reach out because some need is not being met in their everyday lives. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be a personal failing that that need is not being met. We, we need some awareness and a bigger picture of how the structural elements of our sociocultural realities, our relational lives, um, are shaping it. My, my husband talks a lot about, um, and, and I use this example when I teach a lot, you know, there's a, a, a scale of uh, uh, notes, uh, you know, uh, if you're looking at a music scale that we humans can hear, but there's a lot of sound outside of the range of what we can hear that helps to shape <laughs> the range that we do here. And so I find that so often when I'm talking with people about um, self-care or discovering what their unmet needs are or how to creatively approach their grief experiences, they, they're in the, the range of what they can hear um, and maybe haven't had somebody say, what's the stuff outside the range that's shaping this? 
And where can we sort of tap into, you know, a sense of agency? Like, where are the actions they can take? Where is the access they do have to get those needs met ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this is so interesting. I I feel like we're probably going to wind up coming back to this topic too as we we talk. Um, (laughs) Before we dive into more of your work and, and personal story. There was something in your history that I wanted to ask about. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that you interned for some years at Mr. Rogers neighborhood. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh my God. I have a, I have a friend who's going to lose her mind when she hears that she, that's like her (laughs) like lifelong idol. (laughs) So shout out to Alex. Hi Alex. Um, what did you (laughs) learn interning there or, you know, being in that space? Yeah. Uh, You know, it's so foundational. I was studying, um, poetics and and literary theory. And then I was also doing a minor in uh, early childhood development. And so it was sort of through a work study program. I I just happened to have a professor in the English department who uh, she just saw what my writing was like and what my thought process was like. And she said, you know, we have, there's a spot that we usually fill through this work study um, over at uh, the public television station. It was all this is in Pittsburgh where the show was filmed. And, um, she asked if I would be interested in that. And I mean, of course I grew up on Fred, you know, (laughs) yes, I, I absolutely want to. And so I got, um, an internship in, um, the production department, um, mostly working with Hedda Sharapan, but also working with um, David Newell, who was doing marketing and um, publicity and that kind of thing for them at the time. But he was also Mr. McFeely for all the years that the show ran. Um, and then some production assistant assisting on um, the show itself when, when it was in production. When I was there, the show was only producing a few new weeks of shows each year. So we weren't in studio a actually filming, you know, 24 seven. Um, there were a lot of other projects happening. And so I was working, um, with Hedda around like Fred's language, uh, helping with fan mail, the ways that he answered his fan mail, the ways that he, um, worked language in the scripts. And I, you know, I think that the really solid foundational piece for me that's translated into, my every single day of the way I practice um, personally and professionally was that when we were in production in Studio A, Fred was very clear with all of us, you know, down to the intern level, that this was sacred space, that there was something happening in this space that was going out through the ether and was landing face first in front of a person you know, a heart, um, eyeballs watching, um, and, you know, messing around in the, you know, it wasn't that we didn't laugh. It wasn't that it wasn't fun. It was just that he held strong to this idea that there was sacred space between studio a and the spot where the person was watching what was coming out of there. And so, that never left me. And, and, you know, Fred was very, his new technology was television, right? That was a new thing when he started. And so he had all these ideas about this technology and using this technology for the best. And all of that translated for me into the internet because um, in the late eighties, early nineties, we were just starting to use uh, email and have computer labs and that kinds of thing on the campus. And so as things developed, 
And I started teaching online and I started doing private sessions with people online. I developed this habit where I would do a little Reiki, kind of setting a space for myself before the session starts. And kind of this laptop and this space where this camera lens is, is sort of Studio A, right? And setting this sacred space and opening sort of that sacred portal to the person whose ear is going to hear it or eye is going to see it. And that I'm making a choice in every moment about how to use this technology. And I want to be on the side. I want to be standing with the sacredness of these spaces. Oh, yeah. That's so beautiful and is something that I can relate to so much. I think, I mean, it translates a lot into the internet space of, you know, you have such and such many followers or such and such many people subscribe to think, right? That, and it's just, it can get... I don't know, you can get to a place where you forget, like actually each of those number, mm-hmm. like numbers is a real person who like thinks your work is important and has like opted to have you show up in their space, right? Whether it's like in their inbox and these types of things, like, I don't know, I have to remind myself of that often to yes. not take that for granted. And this idea that you're speaking to of like, it's up to you to create the sacred space for your work. And regardless of what that work is, maybe it's not, you know, your absolute passion thing, but this idea of being mm-hmm. like, my work matters, like the container that I create for it matters. Doing it with integrity matters. And yeah, I, I think it can get, it can be really easy to think of like your audience, right. As like a big group of people and like to forget it's, it's something, I mean, I've been, you know, sharing personal stories online at this point for over a decade. And (laughs) so it's like something I've thought about for years. And, you know, I think specifically with, um, I have a weekly email series that I send out and each one, I write to a specific person. So it's, I usually have a couple people that I cycle through, whether they're like close friends or, you know, whatever. I find that my writing is better when I'm like, okay, this is going to Bryce. This is going to Jamie. And obviously I know it's going to a lot of other people as well, but there's something about like, this is a real person who's like going to open this, like with their fingers and read it with their eyeballs and like have it in their heart, you know, and it's, there's something about that. That's really helpful for me. Yeah. I mean, I think about it too, as you know, I, a lot of times find myself, I've got an earbud in, I mean, it's inserted in my ear, (laughs) you know, whatever I'm streaming is going, it's like that intimately involved Mm -hmm. in my being, um, or even just not in my ear. If I'm just streaming something in my studio while I'm working, uh, you know, I have such gratitude for, the materials that people create so that we can interact with them like that. And I just want to have that same space, you know, that same feeling, that same feeling that Fred created through language and through the actual, you know, uh, cameras running in the studio, um, that same sort of sacred space. You know, it was a weird experience because it truly, it is a television show. I mean, it's, it's part of the entertainment industry, right? Which is traditionally not very, tapped into sacredness, um, necessarily, you know, and yet he made these choices that set a space, held a space for all of us there who were participating and for the person it was going to touch. I just, it was foundational for me. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I like what you're saying too, that, Hey, this was actually like, this is the entertainment industry. Like that usually isn't thought of as this like spiritual sacred thing. Right. That, yeah. But, and I think that that's an important myth to break too, that I think it's easy for us to categorize, you know, well, this work is only this. So like how life-changing is yes. it really? Right. And to actually mm-hmm. think like, okay, sure. It's sure. It's just a podcast, for example. Right. Or it's just a book <laughs> or it's just, you know, whatever, but to actually be like, no, this work matters. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying before that like you approach it with that care and you know, you're on the receiving end of work that you love, right? Like that. And even mm-hmm. things that are, you know, quote, just for entertainment that bring mm-hmm. me like a lot of joy. Why is that not an okay? Like joy is sacred also, right? Like laughter yes. is sacred too. And I, I think, yes. I think that we, you know, as like a larger right? Like a cultural thing, like need to get out of this, like, well, these things are considered good and holy and everything else mm-hmm. is a waste, right? Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're so caught in that culturally, right? In that sort of binary, this is good and this is bad. Oh, God, it's just infused into every level of everything that exists. Um, so I think anything that where someone takes some time to think beyond that binary space, um, that that's a space I want to be in. You know, that's a space that, and again, it goes back to the relational thing, right? It might be me, myself and I with the earbud in my ear, but there's a whole bunch of relational things that happened before it hit my ear, (laughs) you know, and I'm in relationship with what I'm listening to. Like it's, it's so much um, different than the dominant sort of paradigms of stuff that, that are sort of all around us. If we just take a few minutes to just pause, (laughs) Yeah. And uh, like allow ourselves to broaden the definition of what's worthy, right. Or what's good enough or what matters. And it's like, not up to any, like different things matter to different people, right? Like different, different things are meaningful, different things are joyful. Right. And so it's like letting yourself have an expansive definition of, Hey, what if I just let myself love the things that I love? It's, it's one of the, one of the questions that I used to ask sort of as like an opening question just for fun in like earlier seasons of the podcast was around the nature of like guilty pleasures. Right. And Mm. I think Mm -hmm. there's something that's kind of universally related about that phrase, right? It's the thing you do that like, maybe you're like, Oh, I may, I, you know, kind of feel whatever about. <laughs> and I've mostly stopped using that phrase, even though I feel like we all know what it means and, and people yeah. knew what I was getting at, but I don't know. I have like a real problem with the idea that you have to feel guilty about any pleasure. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it sounds, it's mm. like a small languaging choice, but like even things like yeah. that I've started to think about. Yeah. Well, and I think it highlights that binary space again, you know, it's good, bad. Yeah. Um, and so just, you know, break, breaking that open by changing the language can be a revelation for people. I, I mean, I find that even with, you know, the, the toughest sort of uh, so many things have happened for this person, the, the type of oppression they're experiencing. When we sit down and I ask them, you know, if your grief was to walk on stage right now, like what kind of costume would it be wearing? And it sort of immediately sort of externalizes. So it's not like there's something wrong with them, but it also breaks open like, you know, not grief, not being good or bad or having to be healed or not healed or whatever. It just is a character. What is it wearing? How does it come on stage? Is it hogging the spotlight? Like, (laughs) you know, and just that kind of conversation about something really serious, something that's taking up a lot of their time and energy and heart but there's a sort of a playful entry to it that's not binary. It, it just opens up so much space mm-hmm. for people. Yeah. Truly, I've seen it just be a revelation for people. 
Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your work. I guess like to start, I would love for you to give just kind of a quick summary of, you know, this is who I, this is what I do. This is who I help. This is what it, you know, like, how do you describe the work that you do? Yeah. Um, well, I call myself a creative grief educator and creative grief practitioner on the education part of it. I'm working with other helping professionals, um, who, uh, want some creative approaches to grief experiences. And this could be helping professionals who are, you know, directly working with uh, maybe grief support in hospice setting after the patient has died or facilitators for grief support group or something. But it also is, you know, the, the range of helping professionals where grief things come up is wide. Um, I've had artists you know, who are, they're doing art workshops, but grief stuff comes up. Of course it does. <laughs> and so these are helping professionals that just, they just want some more, um, skill development in how to hold these spaces creatively. And then the practitioner part is, uh, working with the, the bereaved person or bereaved uh, family directly and helping them, you know, so the things I'm, uh, helping other, uh, helping professionals develop, I'm then exercising in my own practice directly with clients. And again, those creative approaches to their grief experiences, um, you know, holding space for them, whatever's happening, uh, maybe being the first space that, uh, allows them to question, you know, accessibility, of grief support. My husband and I had an early experience with grief support where my husband is a man of color and going to grief support groups, everyone was white and the facilitator was white. And there was also a lot of binary stuff about, well, men grieve this way and women grieve this way. And my husband didn't, we didn't fit those. This is how it happens <laughs> kind of things. And so there were a lot of foundational things in our own grief experience um, that made us question and ask how to hold space differently. Um, and so I'm still doing that 20 years later. Um, that's I'm helping other helping professionals figure out how to do it in whatever their practice is. And then, you know, still working sort of my own skills in holding that space uh, for clients directly too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess time traveling a little bit. Um, you said you've been doing this work about 20 years, going back about 20 mm -hmm. years. Will you tell me the origin story of how you began doing this work? <laughs> Sure. So my husband and I in March of 99 had a full term uh, stillbirth, um, our son Coda, and it was a surprise. It was not, there was nothing, supposedly nothing wrong with the pregnancy, supposedly healthy. You know, we should have heard it's a boy. And, you know, it turned out to be a situation where we heard this baby is dead. Uh, um the the things that cascaded in our experience with his birth death and our own grief experiences and the grief experiences of our older children um you know i was a writer and i was an artist before uh, in crafting before his birth death but <sighs> something solidified after that that really made creativity and grief, um, connect for me. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was just that it was organically, that's who I was. Um, but I felt it on the body level. Like I could not understand. I wasn't, I wasn't suicidal. I didn't have suicidal ideation, but I wanted to be with my kid 
and he was dead. So why was I still here? And I don't want to get out of bed. Why am I going to get, well, my body was very creative. <laughs> it was like, you're going to get out of the bed to eat. You're going to get out of the bed to go to the bathroom. Like, I don't care what's going on. You know, my body was creating these ways that I was still here, even though I felt like the breath shouldn't be breathing me anymore. Um, and so I, I was thinking creatively about these things right from the start. And, you know, we sought support ourselves. And as we received support and had gratitude toward the community that supported us, we decided to give back. Uh, we trained to be facilitators. We taught classes. We facilitate groups. We eventually started helping to train other facilitators. And what I was finding um, from those facilitators was they were feeling very stuck in some of their groups. Um, every month we meet and we, this, you know, same few families come every single month or we have a couple new ones every month and everyone tells the death story over and over again. Mm -hmm. And they were feeling very stuck. And so I introduced this idea of creativity. Maybe in the next session you talk about um, how is grief dancing in their life now? I mean, I used that example before, but so I'm just kind of sticking to it here. Um, you know, for a facilitator to put out a question like that, to externalize grief in a group like that, um, it was very helpful for many of them. And uh, so along the line, I met Kath Duncan, who's um, uh, done some great work at Remembering for Good. And she and I sort of put our heads together and we came up with a curriculum um, that's the work that I do um, collaboratively over at uh, the Creative Grief Studio. And yeah, so, you know, working with the groups, working with the facilitators, working with people one on one. I was running online groups and online classes. Um, and then this uh, program with Kath uh, was the first thing in 2011, I think we launched or 2012. Um that was, an, it's a completely online, it's four months, um, it's for helping professionals who want these creative approaches. So they can be anywhere. They don't have to show up someplace um, physically um, to do this course. Uh, Kath and I thought a lot about accessibility. We really wanted people to be able to do this from wherever they were, whatever niche they're working in. Um, we thought at first, maybe it would just be coaches, but it really that even our very first class, we got all kinds of different helping professionals. Um, and so I've been working collaboratively there, uh, for, uh, the last few years and, and then still, you know, having my own practice, publishing my own creative prompts and workbooks and classes and things. Got it. Yeah. So it sounds like for you getting involved in this work, um, if I'm understanding what you're saying, it was on one part, you know, wanting to, like you said, give back where you had gotten support. Yes. And then on the other hand, filling some needs that you, you know, that you saw, which that in particular, I'd love to hear um, more about anything specific that you want to share. You, you know, you mentioned the group that you and your husband went to. Okay. This isn't, mm -hmm. you know, racially diverse. This is really mm -hmm. like gender binary. Are there any mm -hmm. other specific things that as you were going through, I guess, maybe like the most acute of the grief process that you thought, wow, I really wish I had X. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in the most acute phases or spaces or years or whatever it was, it was very personal. It was just very like the spaces where my husband felt excluded 
the spaces where we had to fight for the support we thought might help. What came out over time, because I was working with the facilitators and going to grief conferences and reading the research and stuff, a lot of the bigger picture things didn't come until after I could move beyond my own story. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, that there's kind of a difference when you're holding space for someone who's themselves is grieving. It's very much there about their story, right? When I moved in the to a position of being a facilitator, it had to sort of not be about my story anymore. It needed to be about who's who was showing up and the folks that were sharing when they showed up. And so it was through a lot of that sharing space that I started to discover things, which, you know, now you can sort of easily find it more easily than you could in the early 2000s. But statistically, um, the maternal health rates uh, for black mothers versus white mothers in the United States is just, it's so radically different in terms of stillbirth. I had no idea how lucky I was. Um, We had a good team. We had doctors who weren't suspicious of us at all um, versus many stories I've heard now where black families have a stillbirth and the mother is criminalized. Uh, The police come, child protective services comes and takes the older living children. Um, There's a trial, there's a bail, there's, you know, seriously, like my cluelessness about those things um, did not get relieved from my own personal experience. It came as I started holding space for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard you say that grief is not a sickness to be healed. You're not broken because mm-hmm. you experience grief. Can you talk more about that? Mm-hmm. I think we're still wrestling <laughs> as humans um, with how to understand grief. And, and I think there's not a lot of conversation around how our definitions and experiences of grief are shaped by sociocultural factors. And so we live in a very modern technology, Western medicalized kind of view. And with that sort of set in place, grief can get medicalized. Example I'm thinking of here, just sort of off the top is the DSM. Um, the diagnostic uh, manual where there are codes and diagnoses for mental health experiences. So with the last DSM, uh, the committee got together and they wanted to um, change the way grief was classified so that if someone is still expressing sadness and grief uh, within, you know, at, at, the two weeks after the date of the death of a loved one, if you're still expressing things at that point, you can be diagnosed with major depressive disorder and prescribed medication. There was a point in my life where I just felt like all of that was just evil. The sort of medical community was just evil and big pharma was just evil. And it was just, you know, out to get all of us. Having done a lot more research and talked to a lot more people, I understand now that there's a structure in place where people have insurance, 
There has to be a code so that the support can be paid for. And so the folks on the committee felt like if there was something that could be coded as quickly as possible, then people could get the support they need as quickly as possible. Mm. So I don't think it was totally evil <laughs> now in the ways I used to. Um, however, it's sort of like, it's sort of like a band-aid on like a hugely broken system. Like, and so what happens is in people's actual experiences, they can get this diagnosis two weeks out and be put on medication and nothing else happens. Mm -hmm. And they're not really depressed. I mean, there is statistically some folks who, it, you know, they come into the grief experience with previous mental health uh, issues or something does develop for them. You know, statistically, yes, there are some, but for the most part, for the hugest numbers, that's not the case. And so having this sort of, well, here's the code and, you know, two weeks out and here's the, here's the medication. It, it, even folks who, you know, have had longer term care and come to uh, a space where they're, uh, they get a prescription to help them um, along with, uh, you know, whatever mental health experience they're having, there's other things besides the medication happening, right? Mm -hmm. There's talk therapy, there's support groups, there's peer support, there's, you know, someone helping you shape things. This is very quick two weeks after the date of the death, whoosh, is not serving everyone in the best way possible. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to imagine a situation where you have a death of a loved one and you're not feeling horrible after two weeks. Like I, I, exactly. I, I, I and you know, I understand what you're saying about, you know, there needs to be a code for insurance and yes. all that stuff. But yes. I mean, this makes, this brings up something else that I wanted to ask you about sort of the intersection of grief and shame, like this idea of yeah. what's wrong with me that I'm not over this yet. Right. Or yeah. like, I think that there's a lot of that, not just internalized, but I also think that we do that to each other, especially, yes. you know, if someone is going through something that you haven't personally experienced, right. There's this idea that, yeah. okay, there's an appropriate amount of time in which you're allowed to be a mess or to have, you know, to have whatever feelings yeah. you have. And then, okay, like we want people to go back to, you know, business as usual. Um, can you talk about your personal experience with that? Yes. I, you know, and I will say also, you know, implicit in what you're saying is, um, not just how long or how it goes, but uh, the kind of grief. So it needs to be grief. That's about the death of someone. If it's grief about anything else, that's more nebulous. Like we don't even call that grief, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's an interesting, that's another space of like expanding the definition, but in terms of like, you know, again, I, this is a bigger picture thing. This is not something I could have told you in the spring of 99, but having gone through my own stuff and having held space for other people, these are things that I see structurally think about what comes out of capitalism in response to grief. Uh, three days bereavement leave. So you think two weeks out, you shouldn't be struggling and there's a code for it and whatever. How about three days bereavement leave? Yeah. Really? In three days, <laughs> someone's going to come back to work. And not to mention that three days bereavement leave is only offered in certain situations. Many people who are on contract or who are part-time, they don't even get that. Right. So <sighs> embedded in what seems to be a personal, individual, emotional thing is, are these structures that surround us that say um, you get three days and then you should be over it. 
you need to be productive again if you want the next paycheck and don't want to lose your house. Um, it's, it's, it's exhausting. It's extremely oppressive. And yet there's very little language out there to talk about it. Although I will say Dr. Um, Darcy Harris has been doing a lot of writing about that for a long while. And she's one of the sources I turn to a lot for this. My personal experience with this was when our son died, my husband was already on his paternity leave and I had ended up having a surgery with his birth. And so um, my husband was now taking care of me because you didn't stay in the hospital very long. You know, they go home. Um, and so he planned on taking his full paternity leave um, because we were grieving, because I was recovering from surgery, because we had two other children who were grieving, you know, um, let alone taking care of himself. In the process of this, a couple of days after being home, the phone rang. My husband picked up the phone out in the living room. I happened to pick up the extension in the bedroom. And I heard my husband's boss, who unfathomably was a doctor, saying to my husband, we don't understand why you can't come back to work. It's not like you brought a baby home or anything. Oh, my God. I, I, I cannot... There are not words to say oh. how I imploded into a little pile of ashes and just wanted to be stuck in the stupid marble jar that my son's ashes were in at that point. Like, I just... <sighs> and to have my husband then have that pressure, you know, juggling all the things he was already juggling and so sort of putting off his own uh, uh, grief tending. And now there's this sort of financial you know, structural capitalist sort of thing. I could not have given you those words in March of 99 when it happened. Absolutely not. But all the years since and the research and the holding space for other people, I can point to that now and say, we think about grief as medicalized. It needs to be healed, needs to be healed quickly because you have to get back to productivity as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. That's the stuff that's shaping the actual grief experience that people are having. Oh, there's so much in there. That's I know. Oh. I know. Can you talk a little bit about um I don't know if like I, I want to hesitate to use like not use things like tips or strategies or like cause I don't really mm -hmm. think that that necessarily mm -hmm. fits. But I mean obviously you've had the experience of moving through grief with your partner. Can you mm -hmm. talk about that? So I think that that's something that people struggle with and maybe it's more so if, you know, the loss is something that like mostly affects one partner and not the other, right? Which obviously mm -hmm. wasn't your experience, mm -hmm. but you know, from folks and stuff that you've worked with, is there anything that you can say about that? Uh, so are you asking in terms of like relationships? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting to me is that whatever happens, even if it's an intimate grief experience that both of you are experiencing, the experiences for the individual people are so incredibly different. There's such diversity and possible options for how people go with things that I don't think in any relationship you can um, just kind of be in lockstep <laughs> for how this is going to play out. Um, it, my issue with the gender binaries in the beginning where it was, you know, there was a lot of things about, well, men grieve this way and women grieve this way got challenged very quickly because my husband and I 
you know, that was not really true for us in the ways that supposedly we were each grieving. But it it really came to the fore um, working with a lesbian couple whose child had been stillborn full term, and they were grieving so completely differently. So are you going to tell me now that there's something wrong here? Because women grieve this way. They should be grieving the same. It should be, but they're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so it made me question a lot of the research that had been done, how it had been done, who were the research participants? Were they all white heterosis couples? You know, um, whose, whose experience was not being voiced here? And so one of the things that happened to me personally, and so then this translated into the work I'm doing with other people, was that um, when my husband uh, did go back to work, we had a mailbox that was out sort of in a parking lot. And so just when before he went back to work, just him going out to the mailbox felt like he was going to Mars, right? Let alone when he went back to work and there was a long commute and a long commute home and long hours at work. You know, it just we it felt like there was so much distance between us. And I called a helpline and I got this wonderful woman who I've never been able to find her personally in real life afterwards. And so I, I have images in my head that she was an angel answering the phone or something, a deva, you know. But she said to me, the thing about partnerships is that um, whatever the distance is that comes up and for whatever reasons and whatever circumstances the next moment when the two of you are together, you really have to consciously crawl back to each other. You've got to find a way to make, to bridge whatever that distance was to come back to each other. Honestly, I think she saved my marriage at that point because um, it it made me realize uh, something at that point that I was sort of wearing this hat of being a person in need. I had all these post-surgery needs and stuff, and my husband had been the um, the, the one uh, tending, right? And when I crawled back to him sort of that first night to really connect and look him back in the eyes, I realized I didn't have so many needs. I was a little bit more healed. I was a little bit more mobile. I was, you know, he was gone at work all day. I was able to do things, but his needs had not been tended. Like we really needed to switch hats Mm -hmm. and I hadn't realized it until we sort of made that crawl back to each other and looked in each other's eyes to say, how are you, you know? And so then in my work, the way it translated, it was into a creative prompt. And this is something we teach at the studio about switching hats. You know, what are all the roles that you wear in this relationship and during this grief experience in particular? And is there a hat that it's time to take it off and maybe switch it with the other person? So again, like it... It's a serious matter. It's a serious experience. It can be, you know, it can feel extremely heavy. And yet, what's the creative way into it? And so I've had people who actually, like, took out 16 different hats and wrote on them or uh, made paper hats, you know, and physically, like, trading hats and talking with their partner about, well, okay, what hats are you wearing? I don't know. What hats do you think I'm wearing? Which ones can we switch this week? Let's switch this one. It introduces sort of this, and again, an externalized manifestation of what's happening, right? Same as that sort of like, how is grief dancing and what costume is it wearing? Same kind of thing. Um, And and I just think it's really important. I think grief can just make so much distance um, between us. And 
that said for partners, but also parents and children, um, uh, grandparents, um, where a child has died, grandparents and parents. I'm, my mom and I uh, really reached across uh, some some um, uh, different experiences we were having. You know, I had I hadn't really thought about any. I mean, I hadn't the idea of a bereaved grandparent, like never entered my brain <laughs> before we had our experience. And so here was this whole population um, whose voices I had not been hearing. Yeah. I want to stay with this, the, the, the example that you just gave about the hats. I feel like mm-hmm. it's so helpful. One of the things that I feel like is challenging with topics like grief is that it can seem really nebulous, but like, it's just kind of this, like, we know what the word means, but like it means so many mm-hmm. different things like you've spoken to, right? Mm-hmm. And like that mm-hmm. the inability to like ground down into something, right? That it's just this is this thing that I'm feeling and it's huge and like unmanageable, right? And all of that. And mm-hmm. like even the the experience that you just gave, like I could in my mind see like, okay, people making hats and using that as like <laughs> a way to talk mm-hmm. about the things like you don't necessarily realize, like you said, about who's playing what role or what does that look like? Or, oh, hey, this is actually a hat that I can take off. This isn't just something yes. I have to do forever, right? Like that that opens up space mm-hmm. for more communication communication for more self-reflection and for something that's going to like move you forward a little bit, right? Is there anything yes. else that's specific like that, whether it's like an exercise that you like or like some, like anything else that you want to share? Well, you know, I think there's, um, there are so many unconscious things, I think partly unconscious because we just don't talk about them. Um, but it, there's a, a great quote, um, the quote talks about how grief experiences, um, these losses shake the foundation of the identities that we thought we had. So that can feel really ungrounded and scary that there's no anchor to the identity of who you thought you were as a person, as a partner, as a family in a community. Right. And so I think some like permission (laughs) for each other, um, to acknowledge that like our whole, our identities are the foundation, um, of who we are individually and as a couple and as a family and as a community has shifted in some way. And so what does that mean now? Right. What, what does that mean in terms of needs? So what needs are there now that aren't being met because they, they weren't needs before, (laughs) And just like opening up that space for us to work with our identities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to change them, shift them, question them, try on new ones. <laughs> um, um, I just think that kind of work is so important in partnerships and in communities. And not just when there's a death, but when someone retires, when a house is lost, when someone's diagnosed with a chronic illness, you know, empty nest, the kids have gone off to live their lives now. In all of these spaces, I think there's this ongoing process of being an individual in a partnership, in a community, this ongoing process around identity. And it's not explicitly talked about Um, There can be some implicit things that say you're not allowed to change your identity, (laughs) you know, Um, so making space for each other and and self and family and community to have these conversations, I think is just so important. I I don't know how we can really be present with love and joy and loss and 
morning if we don't have permission to explore how those are affecting us. Mm-hmm. So the switching hats leans into that sort of permission to play with your identity, but just creative conversation, even, you know, you don't even have to make hats if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit more about how you've seen grief and creativity partner together. Is there anything else that you want to share about how we can use creativity to navigate grief experiences? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so this kind of goes circles back to expanding definitions. So when I'm talking about creativity in this context, I'm not really talking about like fine art skills for making a product that like goes out to a gallery and gets sold as a commodity. Like I'm not really, that's not the avenue I'm talking about. Um, creativity in terms of conversation, creativity in terms of journaling, um, poetry prompts, maybe visual art making, but it's more about the process of those things than the product of those things. And so I've seen, <laughs> I've seen things work. You know, what I mentioned earlier, the facilitators who had groups that were kind of stuck. We uh, did a couple of uh, workshops where we had people, we gave them like a list of words that had something to do with grief, say five or 10 words. And we asked them to individually sort of write something, you know, paragraph, do something poetic with it, whatever you wanted to do with the words. And then we give them another set of five or 10 words and we ask them to partner with the person sitting next to them and together write something, you know, about their grief experience using these words. And then um, we break the room in half. And so then a whole, we give them another list and these whole halves, you know, of the room, these two teams um, write something together and they get to decide how that happens. Maybe they do it collaboratively or maybe they each take one word and write a line and fold the paper back so the next person doesn't see it, you know, and then to come forward and share the things that were written. It's very surprising how that simple uh, space for that kind of process can bring out um, really amazing, uh, solid things for people that haven't been expressed, that they haven't been able to express themselves, they couldn't find words for, that their partner hadn't heard before, um, that um, they didn't realize was something that was running sort of through the community, right, in the grief, the community grief experience. Um, So some connections happen, right, that belonging piece happens. Um, so, which is, you know, that's a great thing to sort of dissipate any shame, right? You mentioned shame earlier. So when the shame comes up, um, what dissipates shame? Well, that sense of belonging, Mm -hmm. right? And so the, the creativity I'm talking about in these spaces is about offering space and some kind of process that will let people go where they want to go. It's not prescriptive, you know, it's not like here's the stages or here's the tasks, but it's being willing to hold the space and not know what's going to come, mm. yeah. <laughs> which for some people is hard to do. Some people are very uncomfortable with that. Yeah. I mean, but so much of what you're saying and what drew me to your work and wanting to have this conversation in general, like I love this idea of creativity, like, because 
you're right. I think a lot of times when we hear that word, we think of art, right? Or like yeah. these like really specific, this is what creativity has to look like, right? These like tight definitions. Yes. But, you know, even in hearing you describe the work that you do, like it's so much of what I'm getting from it is like, it's just like moving people, right? Or like creating space or mm-hmm. there can be something that's so stuck or empty feeling or right. Like yeah. in, in, you know, grieving of different kinds and being able to, like you said, have a process or create a container to, you know, okay, if you have to take these words and do something with them, like you're making your brain do something different than just kind of sitting yes. in that space, right? There's like, and, and like you said, it's not a, first we do this and then we do this. And then at the end, everything's all better, right? It's like letting go of the outcome, but realizing that there's like still, I don't know, like a lot of power to be had in like motion. Yes. Yeah. The the sense of agency that people have in those moments, you know, where they have previously felt so stuck. I've had multiple clients. I, the idea of, um, lab in notations, I don't know if you know what that is, but Mm-mm. it's a, it's a system for, um, working with movement but the way I was introduced to it was through a housemate I had at the time. And I was telling her that, you know, I felt like I was plodding along, that grief was just this heavy, you know, uh, it, it just kept me plodding along because it was so heavy. And she was a dancer. And so she had been trained through <laughs> lab and notations as part of her process. And so she started asking me questions. What if it was suddenly zero gravity? How would you, how, how does, what happens to that heavy plodding grief thing? You know, when you walk into zero and I was like, what? I can do that. Like, That's a possibility. Really? <laughs> like, Just her asking the question opened up space for me to explore in a way that was not terribly um, like I had to find an answer or a right answer or be healed or be fixed or anything. Um, It was just a question. It was a creative approach to, oh, I'm just plodding. I can't do anything else but plod. Um, And she just kind of tapped into that gravity piece and it opened up so much for me. And so I, that's the kind of creative thing I go back to these things when I'm working with other people and I hear them repeating words like heavy or weight or pin down. You know, when I, when I see people in the creative process and there's some sort of theme that keeps repeating like that, I will tap back into something creative to ask you know, to try, to try to generate a creative question, right? I think that's the thing um, that I most want helping professionals to take away from the things I teach is that it's not about finding the answer. It's not about having the right advice. It's not about, you know, figuring out the prescription for how to solve this. It's about generating creative and curious questions so that the person themselves taps into their answers, you know, they're, they're a better expert on themselves and their experience than I'm ever going to be. I'm not the expert in this situation, but I can generate creative questions that allow them to tap into those answers where they've maybe not had that experience prior. Yeah. I mean, so much of what you're saying to me, feels like, like giving people permission and opening up space, right? Mm -hmm. Like that there's Mm -hmm. something that I just thought when you were talking just now about, 
like, what if, like with grief specifically, you know, what if we removed the idea that like, there is a finish line to reach. Right. And which I think is a lot of what you're saying. And so it's like, if you're, which can be tough because I think a lot of our culture is structured that way and it's like super results oriented and we're really not comfortable being out of control and we're not comfortable with things being messy and being overly emotional and unproductive, right. Or any of those Mm -hmm. things. And obviously Mm -hmm. you've spoken to a lot of the reasons why, but there's like something that's coming up for me and what you're sharing of, okay, if, you know, like you said, getting healed, right. Like capital H healed is not the answer, Mm -hmm. right. Because like Mm -hmm. you said, this is going to be an identity shift. This is going to continue to affect you. Maybe how you feel two weeks after will be different than how you feel two months after two years after, right. Like it changes, but it doesn't go away, right? Like you can't like undo it. And so it's like creating space for that to be true. And also I've been thinking about like performative emotions a little bit. Like we've been Mm. told grief looks this way, right? (laughs) And like, if Mm -hmm. you can get out of bed, you're not actually grieving or, you know, any of these, like there's lots of different ways to experience lots of different things. And so even what you're saying, like, what if we opened up the space to, you know, think about zero gravity or dance around a little bit, or like that doesn't invalidate like the, the realness of the grief, right? There's just like more space there. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And in so in in every kind of grief experience you can think of, you know, that I I see that a lot in um, the chronic illness kind of space, because I I deal with chronic illnesses myself. And so I'm kind of in different groups and, and, and reading different kinds of things. This idea that, well, if you have chronic pain, you can't possibly enjoy a cup of coffee and laugh with a friend, you must not really be sick, then you must not really have pain, then. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's that binary sick or healed. (laughs) It's just, that's, it's not human. It's not (laughs) the way we actually work. Um, and so I think, yes, definitely that across the grief experience too, you know, grief is crying, uh, you know, um, particular kinds of expressions. Um, and, and, you know, so some of the things come in about, well, how men grieve and how women grieve and stuff, this comes in, well, if someone is a doer, they're, they're not doing their proper grief work, quote unquote. I mean, the idea of work, first of all, you know, tied into capitalism, second of all, the prescriptive by, you know, gender binary kind of thing. Um, and the dismissiveness of someone who for them activity is helping, but the emotional, um, expressive stuff is, is not, that's not their personality. That's not what works for them. Whereas their partner might be that emotional um, sort of processing being. Well, it's fine. You can do it the way you do it and still be partners. It doesn't have to be the same. It doesn't have to look a particular way. There doesn't, we don't need to be shaming <laughs> the people who process through doing. It's so unhelpful to add shame on top of the grief experience. It's already difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard enough, you know. What do you feel like you've learned about how to be there for someone who's grieving? I think that's something that, I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 me for sure, but I think a lot of folks struggle with that. Yeah. Um, you know, again, this is a space where I think a lot of us are very uncomfortable. Um, I think probably my most personal learning about this was – after our first son was stillborn and we had this grief experience and things went on for years and I thought I understood grief. Oh, this is what happens. And, you know, particularly stillbirth, this is what happens. I had a second stillbirth uh, later and that process and experience of the second stillbirth was completely different than the first. Interesting. How so? 
Uh, well, I, you know, we knew more. We we had different community at that point. We knew what to ask for. Um, whereas the first time I just was, you know, I didn't know what the social worker was asking me for in the hospital. And I didn't understand that they were going to take my son's body to the funeral home and I could not have it back. Like I, I didn't understand the process. So some of it was knowledge. The second time around, we had different uh, access to resources, different ways to ask for things that we didn't have the first time around. And also we had community around us. We had so many other stillbirth families around us that people understood sort of what was happening for us in a way that the first time we had it, the only community I had was like the other pregnant women who were in the prenatal yoga class with me and they didn't want to come near me. (laughs) Um, so what that taught me though, was that like, for me personally, like intimately inside myself, these two grief experiences were completely different. I didn't know anything about how the second experience was going to play out. It was so completely different from the first. And so it translated into my practice, reminding myself constantly, I don't know. Even if this person has had similar loss circumstances to me, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I can't know, right? I can be present. I can hold space. I can ask curious questions, but I really need to have some humility (laughs) to understand that I don't know and stay curious, you know, coupled with staying curious about what's happening for this person um, and really hear them. Yeah. Hear them hear them to um this is uh, a student recently said something about this we were talking about um group culture agreements but uh hearing to understand not to respond yeah those definitely aren't the same Mm -hmm. yeah and so i think that's like sort of a key thing about holding space with people is um i don't know and how curious can i get about what's happening for this person and really hear them you know, which can lead to other things, um, understanding um, and being able to sort of guide the conversation around. So what needs are not being met, sort of circling back around to that and helping them tap into whatever agency they do have, uh, whatever access they do have, you know, but again, it's a process. It's not, it never looks the same. (laughs) I never have a session that looks the same as any other session I've done. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm grateful for your honesty around this because I think, you know, maybe it's due to, you know, we love the people that we love and we want them to feel better or we don't want them to be in pain or, you know, we want to yes. know what to do about it. Like, I think it comes mm-hmm. from, you know, that place. But, you know, we want the, hey, give me the six things to do that are going to help or that I'm going to, you know, and, and, and just the reminder of what you're saying that that everyone's experience is different, that, you know, asking the questions, being present, you know, it's maybe not as like sexy of an answer as a, <laughs> like a six step thing, but it's. Like, I I appreciate you saying that because I think it dispels a myth that like a lot of times I think that we don't show up or we don't do something because we're caught in the, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say to this person. I don't, you know, and this isn't just in grief. I think this is in, you know, other arenas as well. And, you know, so for you to dispel that myth a little bit and okay, well, nobody knows doesn't mean that you can't, you know, like you said, like get curious and ask those questions. And I really like what, what you said a couple times about 
this idea of asking yourself or someone else, what are your unmet needs? Because I I think Mm -hmm. I like that. It's not a yes or no question. I think a lot of the being there for someone else, you know, are you okay? Do you need anything? Right. That it's, it's very easy to be like, I'm fine. Right. Or brush it off or, you know, but this, what are your unmet needs? There's something in that. That's like a really beautiful question. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think it allows for in the same way that people are going to grieve differently. Some are going to have sort of emotional expression. Some are going to be doers. Some are, you know, what all these different possible roles we can ways we can process with grief. I think the same can be said for the ways that we help. And so, I mean, there's some sort of level of honesty to have with yourself, too, about how can I be helpful to this person? Like, am I the kind of person that can go in and hold space and not know and ask curious questions because it's possible you're just not. And that's okay. But so then what is your strength? Well, my strength is like, I can come and walk your dog. I'm happy to pick up with the poop bag and like, I have no problem doing those kinds of things. Then great. Offer that to your friend or your person who's grieving, you know, again, like not prescriptive. Like it's just, there's no checklist. I, who are you? Who are they? What is happening? What access do you all have? Um, learning how to look and how to ask questions as opposed to here's the answer and here's how it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, but I, and I like the self-inquiry piece of this too, what you just said of, you know, what do I have access to and how can that be shared, right? There's also some like responsibility taking there of, you know, to say to someone, hey, here's here's what I'm able to do, right? Like, would this be helpful for you, right? There's like some, I don't know, like agency there in not just waiting for the person who is in pain to tell you what to do. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a question that I know that you get asked is around the idea of, isn't it depressing to do grief work? Like, why would you want to work <laughs> in that field? Can you talk about that? Yeah. I, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, um, again, I think it's, it's some level of self-inquiry, right? How, what kind of personality do you have? What do you love doing? What, you know, for me, I love conversation. I love this sort of creative questions. I love holding that unknown space, um, for other people that might feel oppressive to them. That's fine. Like, you know, it doesn't have to look some particular way, but, you know, I do hear from folks like, oh, how does your husband do that kind of hospice work that must be so depressing? Um, you know, for him, it's not. For him, it feeds him, right? It, he gets inspired by it. He loves the people that he meets. Um, and and I feel much the same about the grief work. I love the helping professionals that I meet. They're trying, they're expanding, they're growing. I love the individuals and the families that I meet because they're reaching out. They know something's uh, um, they may not have all the, all the language, you know, or, um, they may not understand ways yet to express what's happening to them, but they know something's happening and they're, they're trying. And I love that. I appreciate that. I, I want to be with, um, people who are, uh, approaching things creatively this way. Um, you know, I don't find it depressing. It, feeds me. I love having these conversations. I love teaching these classes. I love seeing what people create, especially in, I do some on-demand, um, workshop classes that are, you know, for a person who's grieving themselves. It's not, uh, it's not, this is not the helping professional training. And in those classes, I love seeing what people create because people are so different. Their writing is incredible. Their 
artwork is incredible. Their photography is incredible. Just whatever they bring to the table, it inspires me, you know, and I find that folks who, like I said earlier, they're in a different field. They're not, you know, they're not straight on working in a, in the grief field, quote unquote, um, they're artists or they're bakers or they're florists, but grief comes up in the work that they do in their life and with their coworkers in their business, in the classes they offer in, you know, whatever ways it comes up and they want more sort of emotional literacy, um, creative literacy. I don't, you know what I mean? They, they know there's something there that they want to do and they're going to incorporate it into what they're doing, but they're, their personality or the, the, what they're doing, their niche, the field they're in is not directly, uh, grief support services. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's so many ways in to these things, um, that, you know, if you find, if you think in your brain, oh my God, doing grief support work, like that would be so depressing, you know, well, <laughs> maybe that's not the thing for you. Um, but what, how, what is happening? You know, what is happening in your life? Where is grief happening? And, and what, what would it serve um, to be more sort of literate <laughs> around grief and creativity? Um, but yeah, so for me, it's just not this, this work feeds me this, I, I love the connections. I'm an artist also, you know, so I have a lot of days where I'm sort of solo in my four walls creating and doing things, which I also love and feeds me well. Um, but sometimes I, I crave, I need the meal with connection. <laughs> mm -hmm. I need that community connection. And so I love these conversations. They feed me also. So this is a little bit of a pivot, but when you sent me your bios earlier this week, you sent two. One was short and to the point at more <laughs> sort of the classic bio, I think that someone might think of, but the second one goes into what you call social location. Can you describe what you mean by that and share, you know, why you offered both bios? Why are both of them important? Yeah. You know, this is something that, um, we started exploring at the studio um, collaboratively in our team and, and um, in the coursework itself, <sighs> this idea that our social locations um, shape what's happening with our grief experiences and social location being race, class, um, education, gender, you know, all, all of these kind of identification things. One of the things we, Kath and I were noticing I, you know, and I've said this a couple times before today, but these things where, well, men do this and women do this. But when you look at the research, it's white men and white women who are cis hetero married. That's that was the those were the participants that the research was based on. And so it was just interesting to us that like this was presented as like a, a norm, like here's the default, here's what this is, when really it was white and hetero, like, but it was not named as such. And so, so Kath and I started doing research and, and working in a couple of different ways with different folks to start talking about how naming social location actually opens up some creative conversation about what's happening in people's grief experiences. Right. So like I was saying before about stillbirth experiences, a white woman is not likely to be criminalized for her stillbirth, but 
um, a black woman that statistically in the United States has a higher chance of that happening. Mm-hmm. So that's going to shape, right, her grief experience after the death of this child. And so we just started having conversations about it being important to think about our social location. You know, I'm not a practitioner who, uh, Kimberly Aquaviva uh, did a book called LGBTQ Inclusive Hospice and Palliative Care. And in the introduction of that book, she outlines uh, the difference between universal care and inclusive care. So universal is sort of that when you take that sort of model of grief, here's the five stages and you apply it to everybody. Mm-hmm. Universally, this is how, you know, well, it doesn't fit most people. It just doesn't. Whereas inclusive care says what's happening for this person and what needs are not being met for this person and how do we help those needs be met. And so it helps me to understand that I am white, college-educated, American-born, you know, I have experienced homelessness, but I've had a steady roof over my head for the last seven years. Um, You know, I'm not going to universally be the practitioner that can work with every grief situation and every person who experiences grief. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't want to be, that's exhausting. I, I lean more towards that inclusive space. What's happening for this person in front of me? Am I the right person to hold space for them? If I'm not, like if I've reached the edges of my practice and I'm not really going to serve this person, then then what? Right? Where's my network, my community of other helping professionals um, that I can refer out to or work with concurrently? So getting uh, used to talking about social location, uh, using the language, you know, when someone says, well, women do X, Y, and Z. Well, what women? Does that include trans women? Does that include black women? Does it include indigenous women? Or is your default white women? Mm-hmm. And if so, can you name it <laughs> as white women? Like, why are we so off- offended when that whiteness is named? So, yeah, so that's why the difference in, in the biographies, I know some folks don't really, they're not interested, they don't want to go there with the long one, um, and so I have to shorten to the point, <laughs> you know, um, but on the studio website, um, and, you know, in doing the things that I'm doing uh, like this, um, I try to give the option of that sort of bio that starts to kind of get us used to talking social location. Yeah. Which we don't typically see in the grief field. I mean, I I think that's not exclusive to the grief field. That was, I mean, when I, so I first found you through the creative grief studio. And so like, that was one of the first things that I noticed was, you know, on your kind of about page section that you both did that, right? Like you have your bios as, you know, having that um, social location included. And that struck me as, as really interesting and unique because I, you know, I think that's really infrequent, you know, to see that, 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 that that is how, especially in a professional space, right? Like it tends to be using a bio at, you know, I heard, I was at a conference last weekend, like a women's conference. Um, and you know, so there would be someone that would introduce a speaker or someone that would introduce people on the panels. And, um, one of the women who was doing introductions said, uh, she's like, let's 
try to decolonize introductions a little bit. And instead of talking Mm -hmm. about like this person's, you know, accolades or, you know, criteria or that type of stuff, I'm going to talk about, you know, my personal relationship with them and how they've made me feel. And that Mm -hmm. like of the whole conference was the thing that stuck out to me the most. Right. And not that, you know, our, our education or our training isn't, of course, it's realistic and valid Mm -hmm. also, but you know, I, I felt that a lot in what you were sharing too. Like, Hey, this is the training that I've done. Like, this is my experience, like in this work or credentials or whatever. And also here's how I'm positioned and like what that means. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think even just as a basic strategy, so you don't burn out, I mean, understanding the edges of who you are and what your practice is, um, professionally is is so important because it's easy to try to be that universal (laughs) and, and burnout. And, And I worked with many at this point, folks in different hospital situations or hospice situations where they are still very much explicitly using that kind of universal care kind of language. It's, it's, it's out there (laughs) being, you know, unquestioned in many spaces professionally. Yeah. I mean, and this idea that you're speaking to of being aware of, you know, where the outer limits are of where you can actually be of service and Mm -hmm. then, you know, making connections to colleagues, peers, other people who have different Mm -hmm. social identities who are in the same space. Okay. They're serving in this way. That's different. They're serving these folks that are different. And so like having people to refer people to it, I mean, it sounds so silly, but there's like a sort of network development in this regard that I think sometimes doesn't happen. Yeah. And I think it doesn't happen again. This is a thing that structurally is not really supported. You know, when you look at the structures that support um, what it means to be a helping professional, there's still a lot of stuff out there about professional detachment, um, about being objective, being a blank slate. Right. So there's a lot of stuff structurally, you know, educationally and what's considered quote unquote professional that says, um, you're not supposed to be subject to all the stuff you bring to the table with you when you are. (laughs) I don't know how to be a blank slate. That does not exist for me. Um, Yeah. So, you know, again, it's that sort of individual um, experience and also how it's being shaped uh, structurally too. that relational, again, coming back around relational, relational, relational. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I never really thought about that before. That's such an insightful point about, you know, yeah, as the practitioner, you don't want to make it all about you. Right. And there's like some element of of that, of course. And also like we cannot, I mean, obviously this is why this type of ongoing work is lifelong to, you know, root out our, you know, internal biases or, you know, those types of things that like, of course you bring your social location with you into everything. Right. And I think pretending that you don't, it doesn't, doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't help anybody. And it just is odd. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit of a weirdo and we live a little bit of a weird life, um, on an Island. Um, and so my husband and I both have these experiences where we go to the mainland, um, to do things and just the sort of dominant stuff that's around you. That's so present and so shaping things and going unquestioned. It's exhausting to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that brings up an interesting question, um, outside of kind of what we've just been talking about, about like recognizing and speaking to social location. What is something that either you or you and your husband feel like you do that isn't the norm? You know, part of it is just where we live. We've been extraordinarily aware of housing experiences, financial experiences, 
we have experienced homelessness. We've had to depend on, on friends. Um, how we first came to this island was that we were homeless in September 2001. And I had a friend who lived here on the island at the time, and she was going to a class reunion or something for a week. And she said, well, come over and house sit for me, you know, you stay here for this week of the month. And uh, we got here and she realized how our situation really was, how bad it was. And she said, you know, I want you to spend the week here and find a place to live and find a job and call this person and call this person and call this person. I mean, it was extraordinary that she happened to be here on the island and she happened to have the access and know who the people were so that we were able to contact the um the household foundation that exists here on the island, they would pay your deposit, whatever deposit was required for a new living space as a no interest loan. And you could take, I think it was up to two years to pay it back in monthly installments. They were working. So through that program, they were working with uh, people who owned properties here on the island that could be rented out. Um, and anyway, so we, we got plugged in, and then we lived off island for a couple of years, and then we came back uh, because we had a friend who had a living space in her house and said, uh, you know, what can you afford for rent? Because um, otherwise it's extraordinarily expensive to live here. And we said, you know, we can pay X. And she said, great, I want you here. <laughs> and so um, this island is rural. It's it's does not have the heartbeat of the mainland at all. Um, we have, I think, two blinking stoplights. That's it. We don't really have stoplights. It takes a while to get things because stuff has to come by ferry. So if you, even if you have, you know, whatever, Amazon Prime or overnight delivery or something, it's going to take a couple days to get here. Um, it has a pace that takes a stance against that oppressive capitalist productivity pace that we encounter when we go to the mainland. Mm -hmm. Not that, you know, things of survival, having a roof and, and making sure there's food and, and whatnot is not equally as important, but the pace is different. And that pace, because we have found a way to make that happen in our lives, our everyday lives, it translated into when Kath and I were making the uh, certification program for the helping professionals at the studio, we both decided um, that we wanted to take a stance against that sort of capitalist productive pace in terms of education. So we don't have a, a deadline for turning in your certification materials. We invite you to do the four months in the classroom, but then you know, if in the summer after you're done, you want to circle back around and do something in the classroom, it remains open for you. You can access those things there. It it just was this conscious taking a stance against that pace that drums out, oh, fully being human, you know? And, yeah. and again, it circles back to that grief thing, the three days bereavement leave, the two weeks till a diagnosis, you know, it's that pace um, in terms of grief. Also, I think people first maybe encounter it when they have a huge grief experience. It's the first time they're sort of knocked out of the um, the productivity pace of capitalism. And they're like, ah, where am I? Yeah. So I think we do that weird in that we made a life that would 
work because we were really knocked out of that pace when our, our son died and we had to find a way to have a life that uh, could work with this different pace we have. Cause we were both so weird in that way. I, I, I can't do um, that sort of drumming uh, pace. I, I love that you shared that so much because I feel like, I mean, obviously you were just sharing your own honest personal experience, which is of course like what this show is all about, but I'm always really <laughs> interested in the way that people find alignment and integrity with like their values and then what they actually do in the world. Like, I think yeah. it's one thing to say, I don't like hustle culture. I don't want to be busy all the time. Right. Or, you know, whatever about capitalism, but then to actually hear the specific example of in your business, you decided to run the program differently. Right. Cause I think it's easy yeah. to say, this is important to me, but it's not how things are done. So I'm still going to play by the same rules as everybody else. Right. It's, I mean, I, I hear I'm having one of those like, Oh, me too. It's like very comforting moments in terms of for me in like running this business and running this show. Like, I don't know any other podcast hosts who pay their guests. And that was like a huge funding goal for me. And like something that I've been thinking about a lot of this, you know, if I want to live in a world where people get paid for their time and their creative work, and if this, if I think that this type of work is valuable, then like, what money am I going to give up to do that? What power am I going to give up to do that? Right. And it's, and obviously that's just like yes. one tiny example, but you know, if you believe in a thing, then what's the next step? How do you implement that? And it doesn't have to be some huge thing, but I always find it like incredibly comforting when folks like you share a story like that of this mm -hmm. means, you know, maybe we don't get things as fast or maybe we don't like, there is a sacrifice yeah. in like living yes. by the things that you value. And I don't know, there's just like something in that that feels really important what you just shared. Yeah. Yeah. I just think I, it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to find your way when you're doing these very different things sometimes. And that can involve its own grief. And I don't know, I just I feel like all of these different pieces just kind of come back to like the full expression of humanness. You know, I have like friends on the mainland who love the pace, who love like, they will go to every conference happening across the country, like on some particular topic and present and be there and they love it. I, I just don't, I know how my body works. And so what does that mean? And what does that look like? And again, that's sort of like holding space for who are you and what are the curious um, questions you can ask and, and figure out how to make your life like work for you. Yeah. And, and also not having to make someone else's choices wrong in order to feel okay about your yeah. choices. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So the last thing that I want to ask you, which I think kind of fits into this topic a little bit, um, is what boundaries you have in place, you know, with your work. I know that you said that it isn't depressing for you or it isn't, you know, like those types of things, but there's still yeah. a lot of emotional stuff there. Right. And you're like holding space for other people. And I, I am not great with some, this has recently come to my attention that there's like some boundary work that I definitely have to do. And so I find myself very curious asking other mm -hmm. people, you know, what their boundaries look like with their work. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think this goes back to the practice, not perfect um, process, not product kind of space. I know there's like a couple days a week and, you know, some of this is around my chronic illness and stuff, too. Um, I know there's a couple days a week where I'm going to do some meetings. I'm going to do some teaching. Uh, I'm going to do a podcast like this. <laughs> Um, and so I need to be really conscious in terms of um, what do the other days in that week look like. Um, uh, I actually schedule like into my calendar um, 
art making time, um, social media time, <laughs> like, and, and it may come up on my calendar and, and the day may go a completely different way. And that's okay. But it's helpful for me to put something like physical that pops up with reminders, you know, on my phone. Um, so that when other people start asking me for things, I can say, you know, I'm not available on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Or I could do X, but I can't do X, Y, and Z. But that's all sort of come out of this practice, not perfect kind of space um, where I practice how do these days work and how do they not work. And the chronic illness has really forced me to practice those boundaries a lot because there are times where my body's just like, no way. (laughs) I don't care what you have on the calendar. It's not happening today. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, I push to do something and then in the three or four days afterwards, my body is like, yep, this is what you're doing today. Welcome to the couch. Um, So it's this back and forth conversation with my body on some levels too, for practicing how the boundaries work. I think part of doing the studio work was I had an awareness of the limitations of my own practice and uh, being mortal and myself and there's a limit to the number of people I can help directly. Um, and so I kind of had this idea and talking with Kath where, well, if we, uh, sort of present this to another, you know, another helping professional, that helping professional might touch 20 people. Uh, so there was like an exponential to the boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about that, like uh, some of this stuff could reach more people if I sort of, um, uh, did this first thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, instead of the direct service. Yeah, it's, it's and, and it's ongoing. It's ongoing because the chronic stuff changes all the time for me. Yeah. I mean, and again, there's just like so much honesty in that, right? It's not like, here's the three things that I do and I always do them without fail, yeah. right? Which <laughs> doesn't mean that you don't do anything. And so I feel like the, the like themes that keep coming up so much in what you're sharing, like it's honesty and space and permission. And like, there's something in that that I feel like applies to everything we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good place to start to wrap up. And the way that we end these are with a series of community questions. So the Patreon community, the wonderful folks who support and fund the show, they pick a series of questions each season. This season, it is eight questions that all eight guests will be answering if you're down to answer eight totally random questions. Sure. And thank you to the folks who are supporting your work doing this. This is awesome. They're the best. (laughs) What's something that you do purely for fun and joy? Ooh, that's an interesting. It's like the rephrase of the guilty pleasure, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. You know, I have times where um, (laughs) I come into my little studio and I close the doors. And I stream something like Art 21 or Scandal or like some kind of, you know, some sort of media. And I start making art and just, you know, you know, not sort of like art that I have planned and I'm cutting out something, but like abstract art, like just, you know, collage art, something. And I turn on those Christmas lights in my studio. So there's like twinklies and I have a cup of coffee and the, you know, I love like those are juicy, yummy, fabulous spaces. And they're not, and I don't do them with like a particular outcome. Like I'm going to finish two pieces today or something. It's just this sort of like, 
like, oh, these four walls are mine. And <laughs> what can I do in here? And what do I want to have streaming? Um, yeah, I love that. I love that kind of day when I can have that sort of unstructured, um, playful, um, this space is mine today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> What's something that really makes you feel at home? Hmm. I'm going to say blankets. <laughs> I love that answer. If I could have a really soft blanket on a like soft um, sitting space, like a nest almost, um, I can feel at home anywhere. <laughs> that it's funny. I was <laughs> just thinking the other day that, you know, there's certain spots that my cat will sit that and like the size of the cushion, like relative to the size of his body, like that's what I want. Like, how can I, where is my space? That's like nest enough, right? Exactly. Like yes. you just said, that's like as cradling as what the couch cushion is to this like tiny cat. Exactly. Uh, what's one thing that you do as regular maintenance in your most important relationships that helps to keep them strong and healthy? Mm, um, my husband and I try really hard to cook together every day. I have weird chronic stuff, so we really can't eat out. It's not really an option anymore. And um, he eats differently than me. Um, but we try to do the cooking that we're going to do together Um, And it's kind of a way to transition out of like work stuff into like more intimate sort of like home stuff. And we kind of, you know, we start talking and uh, uh, connecting and stuff. And then we eat that meal together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What are three things that you're feeling grateful for today? Oh, I'm so grateful for your invitation to be here today. This has just been so lovely and awesome. Um, I'm really grateful for my community uh, in person and online because when I was feeling so yucky this morning, I was able to like ask for help and people sent me silly, wonderful things right away. And the third thing is my hubby, my hawk. I love him so much. And he was so great. He was walking out the door like right before we started. And he, as he's walking out the door, he's saying to me, it's all in your bones. Don't be nervous. You know all of this. It's in your bones. <laughs> I love that. Um, So the next question, um, I know we talked about boundaries uh, already a little bit, but it's about boundaries. It doesn't have to be work-related, just in your life in general. What's a boundary of yours that's important to you, and what does it look like to enforce it in your real life? Hmm. I think it's just uh, this practice of um, turning things off. Um, I've been reading, uh, I don't know if you've ever come across the book Magic and Loss. Mm -mm. Um, it's a fascinating book. Um, she's talking about the internet as art and, and she just sort of talks in there about how, you know, there's this wild west of the web and social media and whatnot, but on her Kindle, all she has is just this book that she's reading. There's no notifications that pop up. There's no, you know what I mean? She can kind of get away from the wild west by like going into this, um, more, the solo kind of space. And I, I have a little tablet and I kind of try to turn things off at some point in the day. And I might sit down and play like a match game on this little tablet, but there's no notifications on that tablet. (laughs) It's not hooked into a phone or email or anything, you know, and I'll do that for a little while. And then once Hawk is home, we'll start doing our, you know, making our evening meal together and stuff. And so that process of, um, turning off the wild west of, 
<laughs> of my uh, virtual world. Yeah, not being connected all the time. Mm-hmm, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the last thing you felt really excited about? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I, I think it was last month, uh, maybe it was in December, um, I had a couple of really huge canvases that somebody had gifted to me and it, they'd been sitting here in my studio for like a year. I was scared to use them because once I used them, I wouldn't have any more big canvases. I have to go back to my little things that I can afford to do in my upcycled paper and everything. And I mentioned it to my housemate. And she came back the next day from the mainland because she goes over every single day. And she had a stack of huge canvases that she'd found at Goodwill. And she said, I had done a commission painting for her um, a while, you know, like a year ago. And she said to me, all I want in exchange is two small pieces similar to the one that you did that so I can hang them as a triptych. And I was so excited. I did the two pieces for her that night and I'm still working my way through the big, huge canvases she brought me. I'm so, I was so excited. I'm so grateful. I love doing the abstracts on the big, like moving my whole body to make the abstracts happen. And um, so that exchange was really exciting. I love that. <laughs> and still um, the next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, well, I mentioned this earlier, the handbook of social justice and loss and grief, um, Darcy Harris and, uh, Tashiel Bourdier, uh, edited that book and it's an amazing book. Um, it's an expensive book and the irony is not lost on me. The book about social justice is inaccessible <laughs> to, to some, um, but I found it through interlibrary loan at our local library. They've gotten it for me about 20 times now. Um, and really I've never read anything like it. And it's, it's grief and loss in terms, I mean, they cover uh, incarceration illness. It's not just the death of a loved one. So that, that handbook of social justice and loss and grief is really, really, I highly recommend it. Um, the crafting of grief book, uh, by Lorraine Headkey. I go back to that a lot. I mean, partly that's because of work, but it's also just, she just, she writes beautifully. She shares case studies. Like she allows you to sort of be there while she's holding space with someone. And so that's a beautiful, um, a beautiful book to kind of circle back to often. And then I, I don't have a specific third book, but I will say poetry books in general. <laughs> I just, I, I love, um, uh, Naomi Shihab Nye and, uh, Sharon Olds, um, and Joy Harjo, uh, um, Lucille Clifton. I have a Lucille Clifton book that's just like falling apart because I've read it so many times. Um, it, those women's voices in that poetic format, I just love. Yeah. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'll tap back into that question. You know, can you sort of look yourself in the mirror and say, what needs do I have that just are not being met right now? What are they? You know, can you uh, 
see something about them or say something about them. And then, you know, whatever happens after that, you do or don't do. Um, but just that gift to yourself to look yourself in the eyeballs and say, mm, what needs do I have that aren't being met right now? Yeah. How might I meet them? I love that. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Sure. Um, I Well, you know, there's websites, of course, at griefandcreativity.com. That's my my own personal work. Um, and then the collaborative work is creativegriefstudio.com. Um, probably the most, um, like a peek into my sort of everyday life is probably my Instagram uh, account. Um, but also Twitter, if you're interested in m- more around the social justice piece, I I retweet a lot <laughs> in my days and share a lot of things too about grief things there. Um, but it has a lot more sort of a social justice, a political and grief and creativity on the Twitter account than the Instagram accounts more personal. Yeah. Awesome. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Kara, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me today, Nicole. This has been so fun. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. So go say hi. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Erin. Hi, Erin. Hi. We're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready. I'm totally ready. What are you totally obsessed with right now? My students, um, which is generally true in my life, but I just started working at a charter school in East Boston, and these kids um, were reading The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, and they are totally into like grappling with who Juno Diaz is as a human and like his life trauma and how that relates to the world and his work and like what it's just like so many big things. And they're just doing such an amazing job dealing with all of it and like talking about all of it and writing about all of it. What age do you teach? 11th grade. Uh, so they're like, I don't know, 16 to 18 probably. Yeah. I love that. I feel like I have like a lot of other questions, but I will keep it to, <laughs> I will keep it to these questions. Um, cause I'm like, I want to know more. I want to know all your teaching history. This is, this is the problem where I'm like, people say interesting things and I'm like, don't follow the thread. Don't follow the thread. In it's these so outros. hard not to want to follow the thread, right? Uh, yeah. What's an intentional money related decision that you've made recently? Um, I am trying to just buy less stuff and do more experiences, which I think is true of everyone. It's been really hard because my dog just had surgery and I just had like a bunch of unexpected thousand or more dollar expenses. Um, but I am just trying really hard to, um, my finances are different this year than they've been in the past. And I've been trying to not consume so many things Mm -hmm. besides food. Yeah. Yeah. What's something that you've been struggling with lately that you have found challenging? Um, the like super easy answer is that I injured my hip somehow and I haven't been able to run and that I've actually been thinking about your notes of grits and grace from a while ago of the, like, who am I without this? It's like really funny to be at school and have the kids be like, how was your run this morning? And maybe like, it didn't, that's, let's not talk about it. <laughs> so that's like the, the forefront answer. I think that's like easy to grapple with. Yeah. It's so hard when like something becomes both, I mean, it's obviously like, 
a source of joy and also potentially like a like mental health coping mechanism and then also can like sneak into becoming like part of our identity. And when that thing is like temporarily or permanently removed, having to sort of process what comes up in its absence can be, I feel like, good and also really hard. Super hard. Yeah. My school got numbers to run the Boston Marathon and everyone at school was like, Erin, you should just do this. And I was like, I've it's in like 50 days and I haven't run in two weeks. So no. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like the whole school was like, why aren't you doing that? Yeah. And I was that's like, Cause. Yeah. But it's interesting. I'm learning a lot. What's something that you would love to learn more about this year? How we can be more vulnerable and have it not, I mean, it's going to be scary no matter what, but, um, my school does this thing called circle where it's kind of like a check-in thing. We do it with the kids and with the adults and with the adults, whenever anyone shares anything hard, they're like, but I'm okay. Like, don't worry. I'm okay. And they like, over say that. And I resonate with that, like myself, right? I don't want to share the scary, vulnerable things in front of a big group, but I really want to learn more about how we can like, not feel like we have to preface everything with like, but I'm fine, but I'm good. Yeah. And just be. I, I'm obviously very interested in that as well from like a personal and professional standpoint. And I, I feel like I've been thinking lately about how a lot of the emphasis is on like the sharing and like the one being vulnerable. And I feel like not a lot of attention is paid to like sort of practicing holding and creating space for people that makes it safer that they don't have to do what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, the practice that we do um, tries to support that, right. We do this thing called resonate. So someone shares and like someone else is supposed to resonate with like what that shows them about that person or what it shows them about the like an individual's relationship with that person. But that part is so hard too. And like often just results in like the person standing in the middle of the circle waiting awkwardly. Um, so like, I, I just think there probably are a million ways to support it and I want to learn more about them. Yeah. Same. Last question. What's something that you've recently been wishing people are more open on us about? Um, I guess those questions tie together, right? I mean, all the regular things, sex and money, I like have been talking about nonstop all year. And I do a lot of prefacing with like, I hope this isn't past your boundaries, but let's talk about these. Uh, so I guess like vulnerability in general, that's, that's the answer. Figured it out. Uh, well, you are coming to the Massachusetts retreat this summer and we can talk about sex and money as much as you want. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests each season. Can you share why you decided to support the show? Um, I think so I did one of these outros before and I talked a lot about how like since I was young, I've like really thought about how money is like voting for the things that you want more of in the world, which you say also in your intro. And I think that that like, if I want you to be able to do this, I need to support you in doing it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I appreciate that too. And it's, I think, I think about that a lot too, in terms of like where my money goes, what are the things that I love? What are the things that I would be sad if they didn't continue? Right. And like, how can I, if, when possible, support that with money? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's something that you love a lot about being in our community? Oh, the notes of great and grace are my, by far my favorite thing. I like always want to forward them to 10 people. And then I'm like, no, wait, they need to pay for them. This is this is like a, a thing that you need to pay for. Um, but I just joined the $25 tier, so I'm kind of excited to do a Google Hangout. Oh, my God. Point. And that's, well, at the time of this recording, that's this week. So yeah. that's going to be, yeah, the Google Hangouts. That was everything in, you know, like all the Patreon bonuses kind of start with me being like, wouldn't it be fun if, like, dot, 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 right? And like, wouldn't it be fun if we could all, like, hang out in my living room? Okay, wait, geographically, that's not possible. Okay, we can do that on the internet. <laughs> right, yeah. It's really fun. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm excited. excited. 
it's nice too because the lot like the people who have been in that level from the beginning like and keep coming to the hangouts like after each season is released they it's like the configurations are always different so sometimes you'll like be on calls with similar people but there's always at least like someone new where it's like a different you know like grouping and so you'll get to meet you know a variety of folks which is cool I'm really excited for it. Um, so you mentioned um, where you live. Do you want to share a social media link or something so people can say hi? Um, yeah, I'm E-E-K Granola, Eek Granola on Twitter and Instagram. And I don't know that anyone can find me on Facebook. I'm there, but there are so many Aaron Kellys that it's probably impossible. Whenever you and I interact on Instagram, like in my head, I'm like, Eek Granola. <laughs> like I always, I like make this little sound in my mind. Um, I do like nicknames in life. Like people call me Eek because they're my initials. And then when I was in the Peace Corps, I was the crunchiest person in our Peace Corps group. So I got the nickname Granola. It's so funny. Um, <laughs> So for everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. That support means so much to me and we'll have a really good time getting to know each other after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.